This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the amazing 1993 album from Winger, Pull. <laughs> I like how you prefaced it with the amazing album. <laughs> well, I couldn't say Thrasterpiece, right? Because they're not a true, thrash band, true. but uh, and I think I probably overuse Masterpiece. But uh, I might make the case today. Who's, who knows? Not not seminal, <laughs> right? It no, is, I mean, uh, well, it's not uh, really because it's their third album, isn't it? So it is. But we when we get into it a little bit more, like there is a reason for choosing this album as opposed to their first two, and I can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm, I for one, I'm looking forward uh, to it. There's some things, there's some things I have to say about this album for sure. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. All right. I'm sure they're all great. So I'm excited course, to hear them. Of course, of course. Um, <laughs> but before then, uh, yeah, last episode we talked about Nightwish. Uh, Let's talk about Nightwish. And that was that was an interesting episode because. You know, you took to them, I think, more than I expected, which was nice. Um, And the reaction on the Facebook group, the reaction of listeners, I thought was really interesting as well. Most people positive, but also a few very much not. And I'm going to read through most of those. But I have to start, Anthony, in in a place that uh, I have an apology to make. Oh. Craig, Craig Savage wrote in and said, not my cup of tea about the Nightwish album. I was open to being converted, and the guitar riffs on the opening track and throughout sounded promising. The vocals just put me off, though. When the male vocals came in, they reminded me of one of my favorite albums, Refuge Denied by Sanctuary. I heard a similar sound of Megadeth and was definitely hearing Halloween in the track Brian was referring to. Roll on the Alice in Chains episode. I think, did we imply there that we were going to do an Alice in Chains episode? Perhaps. I mean, to Maybe be fair, Alice I think in Chains will, will come up today. We're constantly implying that we're going to do an Alice in Chains episode. <laughs> I it's, have a good it, thing about that today, so. Since we finally did the Testament episode, you know, it's kind of, it's it's become the great white whale to replace it. <laughs> yes. And so he said, P.S. Thanks for reading out my view on rap, Brian. However, that's the second time you've called me Chris. Oh, <laughs> so Craig, I apologize. Uh, I don't know how I called you Chris twice, but uh, I think I attributed it to, in my comment here to the lack of wearing glasses, which I am also not wearing today. I think it's just because I'm so close to the monitor that I'm assuming that I can read well. But uh, yes, my apologies, Craig. And thank you for not only listening to the show, but commenting on the Facebook page. And gently correcting Brian on your name. And gently, very nicely <laughs> correcting me after I made the mistake twice, right? Um, I, I think you're showing a lot of patience, really not hammering me after the first time. So, uh, so Chris, a different, you know, not Craig. An actual Chris. Chris this time. <laughs> yes. Chris said, uh, I tried so hard to get into this and I couldn't do it. I appreciate the idea behind symphonic metal, but it just lacks any interest for me. Can't wait to hear what you all have to say. Ready for the new homework. We do sometimes get people commenting as soon as the episode goes up before they even listen to it, which I always um, think it's funny. But I asked Chris, do you, what do you struggle with most in terms of getting into symphonic metal? You know, I, because I mentioned it during the episode, but I have struggled because a lot of times I don't feel that it's heavy you enough. You don't feel the metal, um, yeah. From, I don't feel the metal part of it. And he said, I honestly think for me it was a little bit of not being heavy enough. I tend to listen to a lot of death metal or death core, so trying to get into this was pretty difficult. You're right, though, on the, heav- the heavy is there, which is nice, um, because it doesn't just focus on the symphonic elements of the album. But yeah, for my own personal taste, it just wasn't up my alley. 
Um, and I wonder too, as we talk about uh, winger today, I think that that is going to be a, a thing for people as well. Like, what is the what is heavy and what is not heavy, right? Um, for sure, yeah. One thing, uh, uh, one thing, I'll just say there because a few people said that. One is, you know, we got several people reacting, saying like, "Look, you know, this just isn't heavy enough for me. It's not not metal enough. I'm into heavier stuff than this," which is fair enough, obviously. Um, but what I will say is, if you're into, if if that's your sort of position on things um you might want to look at some of the more modern i mean they get lumped in with symphonic metal but i i'm not sure how much they really fit in there but the female fronted melodic death kind of you know or quasi death bands that you get these days like arch enemy um, you know, probably yeah. the best known example that everybody. The Agonist is one that right. I have absolutely loved, and their latest EP is incredible. Absolutely, yeah, and you know there are quite a few bands in that genre where it's it's not really symphonic, but it's also not really death metal, but it is kind of somewhere in between, and they almost all have female singers, like ex- almost exclusively, uh, who sing both clean and harsh, and I. A lot of them don't do a lot for me, but you know they might do something for those people who, for whom something like Nightwish just simply isn't heavy enough. I also think with a lot of these bands too that, um, especially ones that have very dynamic singers, that th- to me there is a big difference between singers who have incredible range and singers who, with their voice, actually make the music heavier. And I'm thinking right. of uh, Nura from uh, Battle Beast. And I would put a plug in for Battle Beast here. Like, if you find that most uh, symphonic stuff is not heavy enough for you, go listen to that new uh, Circus of Doom, I think, is the name of the album. Um, her voice makes the music heavier, and she has incredible range. And I think for some of uh, the dynamic singers, especially in symphonic metal, like the, if their voice, um, even if it is dynamic, doesn't add to the heft, especially in bands that are putting the keyboards very forward and the in the orchestral elements very forward then you're not getting any help from the vocals in that even though the vocals may be sort of soaring and yeah, um, that's fair that's fair and so yeah so for me like that the heaviness could come from and it usually comes from you know the guitars uh in the percussion but for me sometimes the vocalist can do that and i think of people like um you know, like when we talked about Twisted Sister with Dee Snyder, like his his vocals to me make the band heavier than they true. Would yeah, that sound sort of with snarl. any other singer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. they might just sound like a rock band and like a like a pretty straight up rock and roll band with any other singer. With him, there's a whole another element to what they're adding, and I would say with Battle Beast, um, you know, as well. Well, and you mentioned keyboards, uh, and you know, a lot of the, the reason why I mentioned that sort of those kinds of bands is a lot of them do have keyboards and they do have symphonic elements to their music but it's not foregrounded in the way that it is in a band like nightwish yeah so that's why i say it's kind of it's there but it's much more on the heavier side of things so yeah i would suggest people go and you know take a listen to bands like that just to see if maybe that's more up their street uh david was very excited that we're going to be talking about winger so some people skip right to the end and just hear what the homework (laughs) is and one comment on like yeah i'm excited or no i'm not excited uh phil said i listened to a fair amount of nightwish and i've actually seen them once in 2016 on the endless forms most beautiful tour i like them but i don't love them i consider myself a fan of this style of symphonic prog metal but i definitely consider nightwish in the prog genre 
when I saw them in 2016 with Floor, um, I thought was, oh, this is what Celine Dion would sound like if she formed a metal band. <laughs> um, he said Floor was that good. I've actually always preferred her to Tarja. I know I'm a heretic. In fact, I think Tarja is my third favorite Nightwish singer. Um, you know what's funny about that? Like, there seems to be a lot of opinions about the different singers oh, yeah. of Nightwish and like who is the best and in uh, a lot of it kind of negative in terms, not just like who is the best, but like who's just terrible. Um, and, and I found that really interesting. The discourse around this band often centers around just, you know, which singers are the absolute best and which singers are, can't hold a candle to the other ones or things like that. And it's, um, well, I, think I don't know. The interesting thing about the singers, you're right. I mean, it is a, a source of controversy and argument amongst fans and what have you. But the interesting thing is that, and I think I kind of, I may have mentioned this or at least hinted at it when we were doing the episode last time. Um, there's no doubt to my, like, Floor Jonsson is my favourite Nightwish singer, no doubt. And she is, to my mind, the most sort of technically uh, able of the three singers they've had, you know, she has the greatest range. She can do, she can sing literally any one of their songs and, you know, from, from all of their albums and knock it out of the park. She is fantastic. But if she had been the singer when they formed, I don't think Nightwish would have been as successful as they were because Taria's vocals are what made, or one of the things that made them stand out and made them unique when they began nobody sounded like nightwish and a large part of that was because of taria's vocals without right. that they would not have stood out from the crowd and so yeah i just think it's kind of it's really interesting that you will get people who are big fans of floor who really talk down taria uh because she doesn't have the range and she has the vocal range but she doesn't have the range in terms of being able to growl and snarl and you know all that sort of stuff that floor can as well as doing the operatic stuff but she's so unique nobody whenever you hear taria you're like oh that's taria nobody sounds like her she's instantly recognizable uh and i think people sometimes forget that that you know how important that was to nightwish's early success absolutely uh, David said, so based on the first two episodes and the homework for the next one, this season's theme is albums you could not pay Dave to listen to, <laughs> <laughs> which is like in every thread on our Facebook page, there is one that is basically like, man, I don't like these albums, but I do still enjoy listening yeah. to the podcast. So he went on to say, here's how good this podcast is. I still really enjoy listening to it, even when I strongly dislike the album under discussion, because you guys always have interesting, interesting things to say about it anyway. Thanks for another great episode episode didn't change my mind, but did help me get more of an inkling of what makes this album good, even if it's not for me. And that last sentence, that's like, good, yeah. pff, that's the sweet spot, man. Like you, like if that, if we can get people to even have a passing appreciation for something that they previously otherwise like didn't find any interest in at all, then I think we've done our job. I wonder if that might be relevant today. <laughs> Uh, no, universal acclaim for today. That won't be a problem for today. But I can see how with a band like Nightwish, maybe, right? Um, but certainly not with Winger. Uh, let's see. Christopher said, the highs on this album are Mount Everest level. It's pretty high. Mm. Uh, Dark Chest, Angel, Planet Hell, and Creek Mary's Blood are wonderful. I like Ghost Love Score, but I prefer Floor singing it from uh, Wacken 2013, which I think we showed a did we link a video of that? I'm, not, I, I think we I'm not sure if it was in the show notes or if we just linked it on Facebook, but yeah, it's the video's out there. You can find it easily. Just literally search for 
uh, Ghost Love Score, Wacken 2013, you'll find it. It is fucking great. Floor, that's the one where Floor really does knock it out yeah. of the park. Uh, he said the rest is either okay or flat out boring. Um, it feels like Thomas shoehorned some stuff in uh, in some of these songs just to say, I did this and I did that. <laughs> he obviously is a world-class musician and has no problem reminding you. I'm surprised he hadn't torn both rotator cuffs with his self-congratulatory pats on the back. Jeez. <laughs> uh, it's tough, man. Uh, tough tough crowd, this, uh, yeah. this uh, audience here. Um, that does make me think of the album that we're going to talk about today uh, because I... Yeah, you know what? I'll get into it. Just, yeah, just yeah, remind yeah, me yeah. later, uh, and, I, and I'll, I'll get into it. Uh, let's see. Todd said, was Celtic Frost the first act to add this style of female vocals to metal tracks? And David said, uh, they were definitely the worst to add it. The female <laughs> vocals they used were as horrible as Tom's vocals. So uh, we can always count on David to... Uh, bring some sunshine into bring, the thread. Yeah. But that yeah. is a really good question, actually. And I don't know the answer. Like it certainly feels like it was the early nineties that popularized, that started to popularize, uh, female vocals in metal as a sort of, you know, a, a counterpoint to male vocals. But Celtic Frost would have been like late eighties, I imagine, uh, around when they were doing it. So I don't know if they were first. Um, that would be an interesting, you know, anybody out there who knows, drop yeah, us, drop us a line in. or comment on the Facebook uh, post and let us know. Because, yeah, I would actually be interested to find out if that's true. Uh, Kenneth said, if you told me a few years ago that I would rather listen to Brian's first glam metal pick every day for the rest of my life than Anthony's pick, I would have been <laughs> horrified. But here we are. <laughs> he said, "He said, but this is T.O., so I won't be a dick. Uh, there's just nothing here for me. I don't like the vocals. The music isn't heavy enough for me. And even thinking about it is giving me hives. Uh, I was hoping for a palate cleanser with episode three, but who knows? I've never heard a winger track in my life. Maybe it's good. I would argue it's great. Uh, but we'll, we'll let you tell us, Kenneth, uh, as we as we work our way through that. Let's see. Um, Paul said, being a child of the 70s and getting into my metal in the late 80s, Winger was never a group that really grabbed my attention, especially with their later stuff. I found that the lyrics seemed really slow and didn't match the riffs they were being, uh, they were being out on top of. But then I was into the likes of Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. That's an interesting point, Paul, and we should talk more about that as we get into the episode. Because I think it's fair to say of Winger that there's two bands having an identity crisis at points with Winger's music, and we should talk more about that. So um, hopefully I'll remember to do that. <laughs> um, Tordet said, I do enjoy the Odd Nightwish single or two, but it really just makes me want to listen to Lacuna Coil instead for how much heavier they get than Nightwish. I think I I'm... mentioned Lacuna Coil in the episode, didn't I? Yeah, because they are very much you know in that vein, but heavier than Nightwish for sure. Yes, and we, we have not done a Lacuna Coil album yet, correct? Oh, we have not, no. I'm sure they will be in the rotation somewhere down the line. Another interesting band in terms of how their sound has evolved uh, over time. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they've become much heavier uh, over the years. They started out as much more of a, not really symphonic band, but just a bit sort of lighter and more melodic, and they've become much, much heavier over the years. Uh, let's see. Uh, JD said, I have a history of failing at being Finnish. I am not into hockey. I drink in moderation, and I don't care if I ever see a sauna again. 
He said, following in this tradition, I can tell you that I now do not like Nightwish. Part of this dislike is contextual. Nightwish was huge in Finland. It was played to death on the radio, and it was everywhere. You could not escape it. In short, it was deeply mainstream, and my 20-something self was having none of that. Uh, And the mainstreamness runs deep uh, in the sound as well. Nightwish has always been a collection of very talented people, very technically talented people. This has extended into the production, which is always hi-fi grade, pure and squeaky clean. It sounds super engineered, something shiny yet hollow, a product. Uh, And even though it's supposed to be gothy, it's very palatable romance novel gothy. It's the kind of gothy that mom can approve of. (laughs) I like my gothic romance in the tradition of type O negative. Thank you. Oh, so he likes it super cheesy. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, that's great. Which I'll just, uh, I'm just going to, anybody who has anything to say about hair metal, let's just talk about type O negative for two seconds. Um, But uh, isn't that, I mean, I love the fact, this is one of the reasons why I like Finland. Like, this is a country where Nightwish are overexposed. Yeah, right. <laughs> in totally the mainstream. Did. Overexposed. Uh, Can you 100%. even imagine? He says, I guess in a sense, I just don't think they are quote unquote metal enough. This is another topic we're going to hit on today. But instead of the sound, I find them lacking in soul and attitude. Uh, he said, The image is of a haunted house, but under all the black is a shiny new office building. Probably an insurance company. Um, that's a brutal takedown. Of, uh, <laughs> that is pretty harsh. Good isn't it? lord! Uh, he said, "But as usual, great episode, guys. Very enjoyable. The names were pronounced wrong without a fail, but a normal level of wrong, not one of those. Wow, I didn't expect them to go that way. Kinds of wrongs." <laughs> yeah, and once again, I apologize to our Finnish listeners. You know, I, I do my best. <laughs> uh, Michael said, "This was the album that made me stop listening to Nightwish. Part of it is." Uh, that this was everywhere in Norway at the time. The city here even arranged a free concert in the center of the city with them. It really is um, crazy. It's like a different world. <laughs> and John said, can't get past the symphony keyboards. This is a no-go. So, yeah, I didn't. I guess I didn't realize uh, until I just read through a lot of that stuff that overall it, uh, we had a lot of people who weren't feeling that Nightwish album. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. Well, Nightwish as a band have always divided opinion uh, outside yeah. of Finland, anyway. It would seem um, because they are kind of like the clean end of that sort of you know gothy symphonic uh, attitude for sure. You know, they they aren't grungy and dirty and what have you. They don't. They're not scuzzy. Uh, they are very well produced, and the songs are impeccably written, and the style of it is just very kind of carnival like you know sort of haunt, carnival haunted house fun fair sort of thing but you know there's a place for that um yeah you know it's kind of I, i'm much more into the sort of generally scuzzy end of goth myself you know i'm an old school sisters of mercy fan um yeah but you know yeah there's a place for the sort of romance novel gothic stuff and there's certainly a big fucking audience for it as witness you know as demonstrated by nightwish's success there is a huge audience for that sort of thing so yeah you know you you like what you like but i don't think you can blame them for sticking to it i mean that's the other thing is that it's not like they've changed with the tides you know you can't you can't look at them and say oh well they've just sort of chased trends and and followed whatever was popular at the time No, no no they they popularized it to begin with and they have stuck with it through the years um so you know like it or not they are at least true to it you can't accuse them of uh, being fair weather to this kind of music 
Uh, there was one more thing from this Facebook thread that I need to uh, talk about. When when Chris was talking about, um, what what did he say here? So Chris said, was super stoked to get a shout out oh, when he was uh, saying, I grew up predominantly in an 80s household, so I've heard all hair metal from Samantha uh, to Samantha Fox. He said, safe to say I'm the youngest of the group. Uh, which I enjoy very much because I get to hear about new music and experiences from those who get to enjoy it. Really excited to see Winger on the next episode. But in that conversation, there was talk about like what other hair metal bands that we might do, and it came back around to Samantha Fox. And I rem- and I remembered the story of the most dangerous concert that I've ever been to, and uh, I don't think I've ever shared that here before. But I'm sure you remember Samantha Fox, Anthony, right? Uh, of course, yeah. I mean, and yes. I was, I'm, I'm not even sure why she's in a conversation about heavy metal, but okay. I don't either. <laughs> I, I, I think just because the name was mentioned, I was like, oh yeah, that reminds me of the most dangerous. Or maybe I mentioned it on on a uh, on a show. Maybe when we were talking about Cindy Lauper, I don't know. Uh, but in any case, Samantha Fox's name came up. Growing up here in Massachusetts, we used to have an amusement park called Riverside Park in Agawam, Massachusetts. In the year 2000, it became a Six Flags, and now it is known as Six Flags New England. But prior to that, um, back in the old days when I was a kid, they had a racetrack at this amusement park. And I used to go see demolition derbies there. I used to go see all these races there. They would do a lot of like Connecticut slash Massachusetts rivalry because it's sort of right on the state line between both. Mm -hmm. And so um, they also used to have concerts there. And I believe that I have seen, uh, I know I saw Firehouse at the racetrack, but the most dangerous concert I've ever been to was Samantha Fox. And what they used to do is they would have, um, Basically, the middle of the race ring is where they would put the stage. And so people would, uh, you could sit in the bleachers, you know, outside of the racetrack, or you could stand on the racetrack all the way down to, you know, the the middle area there. And that's where they would put the stage for these concerts. And so I had gone to a Samantha Fox show because they would have concerts like weekly at Riverside. And back in the day, I used to get a season pass to this amusement park. Every Christmas, my grandfather used to give give me a season pass to this park. So we would go to see whoever, you know, was playing there. And it was Samantha Fox. And I can't remember who the opening act was, but this was on the, I tried to look this up and it was the tour in 1989. Wow. Which I think was the, um, it was her third. Was it? I want to have some fun. I think was her third album. Oh, I have no and idea. So, dude. Yeah, <laughs> she, she I, had you don't like have to pretend you don't know. Anthony. She had I like know two you know. hits here in the UK. Unless you were a fan, you ain't gonna know that. <laughs> well, do you remember the two hits? Oh, one of them was called literally called "Touch Me." The other one, yes. no, I cannot remember the name of it. I know that she had a second hit and then pretty much. Dropped I, I would out add charts, two more but... that were hits in the United States, oh, which really? were "Naughty Girls Need Love Too." And uh, also, uh, I Want to Have Some Fun was the title track, I believe, off of that album. Those were So she had multiple hits over here. And um, what happened was there wasn't a ton of security at these shows. It was just park security. And they had the flimsy metal gates that they put up, you know, just in front of the stage. Everyone's seen them if you've ever been to a live concert. They're about four feet high tops. And they're just metal barred gates, and, they, and they're and they about four feet long each section, and they just kind of hook together and go around. That was all separating, and that gate wasn't even that far from the stage here. I mean, I had seen Samantha Fox's videos on um, 
you know, uh, MTV and stuff like that. But this was also the time of like new kids on the block. It was the time of like people going insane for pop stars mm-hmm. uh, back in the eighties. And so we decided myself and a girl I was with and and one of our friends decided to get as close to the front of the stage as possible. And we watched the opening act and it was fine. Um, and then Samantha Fox came on and the second she came on stage, the entire crowd rushed the stage and we were almost impaled on those metal gates in front of the stage oh, wow. to the point where one of the people I was with passed out and we had to like fight through the crowd to carry her out of this throng of people like back to the bleachers because it was it was like I have never been at a concert and I've seen Clash of the Titans. I mean, I've been into so yeah, many yeah, hardcore some big metal shows. Yet. Samantha Fox, the most fearful I've ever been at a concert in my entire life, and like the most dangerous situation I've ever been in at a concert. And she was okay. We had we got through the crowd and stuff like that. But that first five minutes of that show were absolutely terrifying. And so to this day. Samantha Fox, 1989, <laughs> summer of 89, uh, was the most dangerous concert I've ever been to. That is absolutely crazy to me. Like over here, everybody knows Samantha Fox as she was a model. She was a topless model uh, yes. for many years and then, you know, tried to become a, a pop star and had a couple of hits and then pretty much immediately faded from public view over here. You know, I, I understand that she was more successful around the world, but yeah, the idea to somebody over here that she would, that people would rush the stage. <laughs> Crazy, know, that, right? That she would have a crowd large enough to present a danger at a concert is just, it just does not compute. It's crazy. Well, and here's the thing. Like, I don't even know. I don't even remember how big that crowd was. I just know that damn near everyone in that crowd wanted to be as close <laughs> to the stage as possible when that concert started. Wow. And it was the most unsafe situation. And, uh, it was wild. So, yes, um, I could. I tried to go back. I did find a couple of set lists from that summer tour, but none. Uh, there was no record of the Agawam show, but I believe it was in July of 1989. So I would have been uh, sophomore, 16? sophomore, junior. Uh, yeah, I would have been in my second or third. Yeah, I probably would have been about 17. Yeah. Man. So there you go. Uh, that uh, that's the kind of stuff we talk about on the Facebook <laughs> <Yeah>. page for <laughs> Thrash It Out and on this podcast, the, apparently uh, yeah. the Metal Arguments podcast. So yes, um, all right. Well, let me just uh, interrupt and give people the U- some URLs then. So yeah, if you want to join in on that Facebook page, it's at facebook.com slash groups slash Thrash It Out. As I'm sure most of you listening know, but you never know. We always get losing new listeners popping up from time to time. And of course, remember that you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out and help keep the podcast going so that we can do episodes like this one talking about Winger. How's that for a segue? Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) Such a professional. (laughs) And I feel it. So we're going to talk today about the 1993 album from Winger, which is called Pull. This is an album that they actually broke up the following year afterwards, but it's their third album. And Winger is one of those bands that I think was in some ways kind of a victim of the times. And for this band, even more so than many of the bands that came in at this particular point in time, because their first album 
came out in 1988. So they were kind of the last wave of what you could consider hard rock hair metal bands that kind of came in during the wave of its utmost popularity. Because very soon after that, the bottom fell out of the entire genre. And and not only did it affect, you know, hair metal, but it affected thrash metal. It affected everything um, when grunge took over. And I actually pulled Anthony from the worldhistoryproject.org, the grunge timeline, because I think it's important for us to just understand what was kind of happening around the music scene at this time. So, oh, I remember. as I mentioned, Dude, I, I mean, you and I lived through well, it. Well, <laughs> I know, I know you remember, but I mean, for anybody who's listening that maybe yeah, doesn't remember yeah. or wasn't there during the time and, and think that it's maybe overblown how grunge changed the entire landscape of music in the period of like a couple of years. Um, bands went from being, and I, I always use the example, right. Of like going to see clash of the Titans with Slayer, Anthrax and Megadeth. Alice in Chains was the opener. That was in 1991. Within a year, Alice in Chains would have been the opener on that show. Would have been the headline. Um, they got booed off the stage in in night because Man in the Box had just come out. Um, but a year later, they would be bigger than all of those bands. Yep. So this album comes. But let's say so. Winger enters the scene in 1988. So when did the first album come out? Uh, it came out in August of 88. So here's a little bit of the grunge timeline. In August of 1980, 1988. Soundgarden releases their album uh, or EP FOP, right? Um, So Soundgarden is kind of already on the scene. 87 Nirvana is founded. Um, 89 Mother Love Bone releases the Shine EP. And uh, by 1990, you have uh, Mother Love Bone releasing the the album Apple, 1990, August of 1999, 1990, Alice in Chains releases Facelift. Listen to this between, uh, when was Bleach Bleach released? Oh, sorry. Bleach comes out, uh, 89. So Bleach comes out in 89. So now you've got Nirvana and Soundgarden really sort of on the scene at that particular point in time. Mother Love Bone, Alice in Chains, Facelift, 1990. This span in 1991, dude. April 1991, Temple of the Dog releases their self-titled album. In August of that same year, Pearl Jam's 10. In September of that same year, Nirvana's Nevermind. In October of that same year, Bad Motor Finger from Soundgarden. Yep. Dude. Oh, no, I remember. <laughs> I mean, if you want to look at the the freaking core of that, because I, as someone who has never, I would never have said that I was huge into grunge, but I always think of ten. I always think of. Pearl I was Jam's just going to say it's important to note, yeah, that uh, the Pearl Jam was absolutely the band that broke it open. Like Alive was <sighs> such a massive hit that that summer going into autumn uh, that it just kind of opened the door for everybody else. And less than a month later, never mind. Oh yeah, no, I remember it coming out because I was at and art then, college. Like, two weeks later. Bad motor finger. I know. I was at art college I mean, at the time, and I remember a couple of the guys in my class were um, in my design class were into that sort of stuff. You know, they were into the sub pop and um, mud honey and bands like that. And yeah, I think one of them even had bleach. Uh, and then, yeah, I remember they didn't care so much about Pearl Jam, but I remember Nevermind coming out and one of them literally bringing it in on cassette because we had yep. a stereo. 
you know, a portable stereo in the design studio at college. And one of them brought it in on cassette. I think like the week it was released and put it on and we all just sat around listening to it going, holy shit. <laughs> right. So imagine that you're, you're winger, you're coming in to the scene at this particular time. Like your first album hits in 1988 and this is kind of going on in the background, right? We're still early, kind of early days of grunge, you know, starting its takeover. But for Winger, by the time they release their second album, In the Heart of the Young, in 1990, things have started to change. And then this album, Pull, comes out in 1993, and we are in an entirely different landscape now. Yeah, by which time grunge has basically taken over the world, yeah. Taken over the world, and much like the early attitude of metal of like, you know, death to anything that's not metal grunge had that effect on anything that wasn't grunge. Oh, really? When it came in. Yeah. It was like, I think, but what's really interesting is, you know, cause I didn't know a lot about winger at all before this. Um, and actually before I get to this other point, I should say, I do have a little bit of follow up from the previous episode, but it related yeah. specifically to this album. And that is at the end of the last episode, I said that I hadn't knowingly heard a winger song. Turns out that's not true, but not in the way you think. <laughs> You you said at the time, oh, I'm sure you have because of like their radio hits and stuff. Mm -hmm. No, that's not the case. Actually, I did listen to their debut album some years ago because somebody wrote into my old podcast on Justly Maligned suggesting covering that album. So I did listen to Winger's debut, but it was like, you know, six years ago or something. And I listened to it basically once and then pretty much forgot all about it. You know, I couldn't name all hum a single song off the album. Um, but I had listened to it. So that, that, that is an interesting little wrinkle to this. Um, that does not surprise me at all that they would have been written in as an unjustly maligned band because they are unjustly maligned without a shadow of a doubt. Well, and like, they got, I mean, and this is what I was going to say. So this does lead into that point about them. Yeah. Sort of the world moving on without them or essentially being overtaken by circumstances because I read a few retrospective interviews with, I couldn't find any contemporary stuff, but I've read a few retrospective interviews with all the members of the band that played on this record since, you know, about this album. Um, and what I found really interesting was like, yes, it led to the breakup of the band, but it led to their breakup because they just couldn't get gigs. Yes. Because, because nobody the, the album wanted, was bad. Nobody wanted right. a band that was so firmly associated with the hair metal movement and that sounded the way they did. I mean, even this record, you know, you talked about it sort of being a little bit more uh, incorporating a few elements of sort of like the metal at the time, but really not really not compared to, you know, an actual grunge band. And just, it's just that nobody wanted a band that sounded like this. And especially one that was so closely associated with the hair metal movement, which as we know, was completely derided as soon as grunge took over, like, you know, the, the worst thing you could possibly be in the world was a hair metal band. Yes. Um, and then not bitter about it. That's what well, really struck me. They were all like, it was a really, a ami- it was a really amicable breakup because they were like, 
we just can't get the gigs. We haven't fallen out, but nobody wants to pay us to record well, in, or in play. Case in point, <laughs> they're together now and making music and and working on another album right. that will be coming out sometime in the future. And uh, at the end of the show, I'll just talk a little bit about the last time I saw them, which was in 2017, and they were still touring their 2014 um, yeah. album, uh, Better Days Coming. I read an but interview to, with uh, the drummer. Is it Rod Morgan? Rod Morgenstein. Right, Rod Morgenstein. I read an interview with him where he essentially said he, he was he's a very, very, you know, sort of zen philosophical dude, as many drummers are. And he essentially said, we sold millions of records and we played huge arenas. What's to regret? You know, what's not to love? Yes. And I mean, so for people who have no frame of reference for winger whatsoever. I mean, just to kind of back up a little bit, Kip Winger is a guy who, at this stage of his career, has a Grammy nomination for classical music. He uh, composed a four-part work titled Conversations with Nijinsky. I think I I probably did not uh, pronounce that name right. Intended to celebrate the life of ballet dancer and choreographer Vaslav Nijinsky. The album was recorded by the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra and was nominated for a Grammy. He's always been classically influenced. He has a background in ballet as well. And so, and his approach from everything that I've read and and seen in interviews and everything else was um, very much wanting to be like, the hair metal version of dream theater. Right. Like they wanted to be a very proggy band and considered themselves not like in a superior way, but just like better musicians than a lot of the bands that were, that they were lumped into the same category with. And I think of bands like poison and slaughter and Cinderella and Bon Jovi and all that kind of stuff. Um, all of which are bands I love and, and certainly great musicians as well, but wingers on a different level from that and you can hear that in any song that you even their cheesiest most uh syrupy hair metal songs are just Uh, on a technical level different the technical virtuosity yeah you know is evident even in this album and I, i assume maybe even more so on their previous albums um because they may have been, you know, a little more inclined to shred as people did in the sort of latter days of hair metal. But yeah, there's no question that technically they are clearly all very, very talented musicians, and much more so than yeah, many of the <laughs> latter day hair metal bands. So the first, so so then uh, Kipwinger starts out. He had co-written a song on one of Kix's albums uh for midnight dynamite i think was the album he was working with uh producer Bo hill who had gotten him from what i've read uh different uh, sort of studio jobs right so he'd worked on a couple of things red beach who is the guitar player for winger was also doing a lot of studio musicianship at that particular point in time playing on a lot of different albums and stuff like that but um i believe it was Bo hill that introduced kip to alice cooper and so he ended up being on a couple of Alice Cooper albums, and that's where he met Paul Taylor, who was playing with Alice Cooper as well. And I want to say it was back in 1987 where they ended up um, forming their own band and you know starting to put their own music together and stuff like that. And so Bo Hill, the producer, was a very influential person in the first 
decade of the career, not just of Kip Winger, but of uh, Winger in general. Yeah. And so it kind of went from studio musicianship to uh, be, playing with Alice Cooper, meeting Red Beach during that time, them putting demos together, and them eventually, um, you know, getting their own record out and record deal and stuff like that. And Bo Hill produced the first two albums of Winger. And which is an important distinction because when you hear Kip Winger talk about this particular, and by the way, the first two albums that Winger put out both went platinum. Oh yeah. There were multi-million sellers. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, they were, again, when you listen, when you go back and read some of those interviews, like they anticipated, even with the current music scene, they had anticipated that this third album was going to be big for them. And uh, there's a story out there about Red Beach using some of the advance that they got. Like he had, he had basically decided to buy a house about the time that this album was going to be coming out, and he had to sell that house like eight months later oh, no. because this album just didn't. Uh, yeah, it, hit so, it at sold the time. like three hundred thousand. This album, I think, which right. you know and, is now would be a massive hit, but back then, when you've been selling millions of records previously, not so much. And if you ask someone who's not like a a, a, a winger fan who's you know has followed their discography right or and even people who considered themselves winger fans back in the day i would say the vast majority of them know the first two albums but not this when one this, right not this one at all like i would venture to say there's even winger fans out there that didn't even know this album existed for a decade after it came out um so when this album came out, it just did not do well for them, which is unfortunate because when you go back and you uh, read interviews and you, even today when Kip Winger talks about this album, he almost considers this to be the first true Winger album. I saw him say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he ca- he has called it in multiple interviews, the birth of the band in this particular album. And one of the reasons for that is because of uh, Mike Shipley. So Mike Shipley was a produce, mixer, engineer, producer who had worked on tons and tons of albums back in the day. Remember Bo Hill, kind of uh, very instrumental in getting uh, Winger's career off the ground. From a production standpoint, um, Kip has kind of said that in terms of mixing and engineering, he didn't really feel like the sound that they got out of the first two albums was great. And he has expressed a desire to even go back and, and, you know, uh, redo remaster those albums at some point in time, make them heavier because he didn't feel like the bass was well represented and also just didn't. So he actually credits. And I thought I pulled a quote of this. Let's see in the interviews. He said, um, uh, so here's him talking about that whole relationship. He said, the relationship between us and Bo Hill compared to the one that we had with Mike Shipley was totally different. My role in making those records was very much the same. I had been working with Bo Hill uh, since I was 16 years old, so I knew all the stuff that was needed to prepare that first album. 90% of it was finished by the time we went into the studio uh, on the first and second album and the third uh, and the third album. He said, because I make these very detailed demos of what you can actually uh, here, they put out an anthology of demos where the songs uh, in some ways sound pretty different from what ended up on those early albums. Um, he said Mike Shipley's role was huge, primarily in the way we recorded the album, because he was, God rest his soul, Mike Shipley has passed away. Uh, he was very detailed in how we recorded, and his ear was very attuned to down to the millisecond. If you were going too fast or too slow, he could immediately point it down. Very small time changes. He said, when we went into the studio, I couldn't hear it. 
he used to tell me, listen to that. Can't you hear that? And all of a sudden it was like, boom. So he was very instrumental in taking my ability of hearing to another level. And his mixing was, and then it's like dot, dot, dot. He said, there's never been a better mixer slash engineer than Mike Shipley. I worked with him on two albums, Pull and my first solo album. In my mind, he was the Vincent Van Gogh of mixing. There was nobody better. Mm. So very high praise for Mike Shipley. And just to give you an idea of who Mike Shipley has worked with over the years, he has worked with bands like Def Leppard, uh, Devo, The Cars, Joni Mitchell, um, Scorpions, uh, Cheap Trick, Vixen, Rat, uh, Richard Marks, Meatloaf, uh, Shania Twain, Whitesnake. I mean, just yeah, the yeah, list goes a, on and on and on. Like Aerosmith, that's a hell of a the Go-Go's, um, Maroon 5, like just worked with a bunch of people. Bo Hill has a ridiculous um, discography as well as far as that goes. But clearly, Kip felt like the uh, the ability to capture the sound of what he was really trying to do the first time that that happened was on this album. But that's... And so... So, hang on. But that's really funny to me because from... This is one of the things that struck me as I was listening to this album. From what little I do remember, and I didn't go back and listen to the debut, but from what little I remember of it, this album doesn't sound that different to me. Like, I remembered you saying that this was almost like a change of direction for them and, yeah, wasn't as popular and was maybe even a bit controversial with their fans. And I was listening to it going, why? I don't understand. To me, it sounds almost exactly like that first album. And it did also make me think like it, about the people who complained about Nightwish on the last episode not being metal enough and I'm like this is like this is lighter than Def Leppard in places <laughs> I wonder if those same people are going to complain about this album you know <laughs> it's there's a lot to unpack from those statements Anthony I don't uh <laughs> let's just say I disagree with that um to me, I feel like, and it's interesting that Mike Shipley worked with Def Leppard as well, because I feel like that is a problem that Def Leppard has had uh, in the past, is that the way those albums are produced um, takes a lot of the heft out of them. And Hysteria is one that I often go back yeah. and think about in terms of that being, um, there is a heavier album in there, but it's not what was uh, what you get um, on that particular album. For me, when I listen to this album, it is a... It is a it is the transitional album for Winger because it is. There are songs on this album that are very much have their foot in the those hair metal. Uh, and when I think of hair metal, I really think of like the singles, right? I think of the mainstream sure, popular yeah. um, sort of things. Like, I there's definitely songs on this album that fit that very clearly. But I also feel like the way they're composing these songs on this album and what they're doing on some of the songs on this album is very different than what you saw. Um, you saw glimpses of it on the first two, and I would say probably the second one more. Like, there's a song on the second album, Rainbow and the Rose, which I think is pretty progressive compared to other stuff that they've well, uh, uh, done. Okay, so to be clear, and you, you, I'm sure you're right, but I'm not talking about the songwriting that much. I mean, that's a part of it, but I'm mostly just talking about the actual sound of it. Like, uh, I would go back and listen to those other ones because I I feel like it's a little. I thought they they sounded good on the first two albums, but to compared to this, I feel like it sounds flatter when you listen to especially the first album compared to this one. I okay. feel like to me, 
Um, now, granted, I always have the bass cranked up on everything <laughs> that I listen to, but I feel like there's the bottom end on this album. There, This is a more well-rounded sound, I feel like, than their previous albums. Um, the guitars have always sounded good in Winger, and Red Beach's style is unlike anybody else's, I feel like, out there. I can recognize his stuff immediately, even when he's playing in Dokken and Whitesnake and stuff like that. And so... Um, but I feel like it's a, it's a more robust sound on this album. So I, I was all in on the Mike Shipley conversation. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I totally get that. Like, I totally feel that when I listen to this album, I think this album in 2022 sounds incredible from a production standpoint. Like uh, I absolutely grant you. adore I mean, this album. Yeah. I can't fault the, the mixing and production of it at all. Uh, you know, everything's very clear and sort of well-balanced. And yeah, yeah, technically it's, it's very good indeed. Do you want, before we get on to the talking about the individual tracks, because I know this is a sore point for winger fans in general, do you want to explain like the whole Beavis and Butthead yep. angle to their downfall then? Well, let, let's explain the Beavis and Butthead and the Metallica angle to this whole thing, because there was, um, for those of us, and I don't know how, you know, how evident this was outside of the States, but as that grunge uh, wave took over, what I saw here, or what I experienced as a metal fan, is that the, there was already a rift between, you know, the the big four and the thrash metal scene and hair metal. Obviously, that yeah, was something that had been kind of brewing for years. But I also felt like the the thrash metal and and you know harder metal scene really took advantage of the grunge wave. In, as a way of self-preservation to really double down on the the sort of disdain for hair metal. Um, because obviously for many of the those other bands that we grew up with, the Metallicas and the Megadeths and the Slayers and that, like everyone was affected by grunge. And so what I kind of saw was those bands jumping on the bandwagon even more to make hair metal the poster of what was wrong with rock and metal music at the time period. And so it was kind of like allying with the other bully to, you know, to save yourself. You know what I mean? Um, because a lot of those bands had a tough time navigating the next few years as well. And so it was a very interesting dynamic at the time. Well, for, for a couple of different reasons, winger became the poster band for hair metal. Which is wild because again, Winger comes on the scene in nineteen eighty. Right, they're one of the last bands My in God, the scene. You've yeah. got Faster, Pussycat, <laughs> Poison, Motley Crue. I mean, and I mean, so many different bands, right? That were part of that scene for much longer, and somehow Winger becomes the target for everything that's wrong with music and for like hair metal being sort of poser metal, right? And not not real metal and stuff like that. And there's a few things that sort of contributed to that. Um, one of them was the Beavis and Butthead thing. And from what I've read, Mike Judge, who's the creator of Beavis and Butthead, um, he had thought that Winger was opposed to having their music played on the Beavis and Butthead show. Because for anybody who didn't watch Beavis and Butthead, I don't know how you could have avoided it back in, in the day. But it was um, a cartoon with those two idiots. And then they would intersperse music videos where the two of them would be sitting on the couch um just making all kinds of commentary about the bands and the music and stuff like that. And it, and it was a, to me, a parody of the whole, like 
those guys are wussies. That's not metal, you know, versus like, oh, this is the most metal thing ever. And like, that was the whole premise yeah. of the show, right? Is what they thought was metal and what they didn't think was metal. So anyways, Mike Judge um, apparently thought that Winger was opposed to having their music on the show. So he decided to poke fun at them. He had a character who is frequently the butt of many jokes on the show by the name of Stuart, who's kind of a dorky looking kid who wears a Winger t-shirt. And so this kid uh, wears a Winger t-shirt. He is uh, very much, you know, shown to be on the show as not cool. And certainly Beavis and Butthead do not think he is cool or metal at all. And they also poke fun at Winger videos on uh, on the show and stuff like that. And so that did not help, you know, Winger at all. And I thought I put the time well, and down. To hear the band members talk about it in retrospect, like it's not not just that it didn't help. But I saw interviews with uh, Kit Winger where he said, like, their sales basically just dropped overnight. Well, well, here's where Metallica comes in okay. to the mix. Now, I will also say that um, notice that uh, Butthead wears a Metallica shirt, right? So you've already got that contrast of, of like, it's Metallica and ACDC are the shirts that Beavis yeah. and Butthead wear. So you've got that contrast of, like, this is the rock band, this is the metal band. Everything else has to kind of live up to that sort of standard, right? So that I think that happens in the spring of 93 is when the episode of Beavis and Butthead where Stewart is first wearing the winger shirt happens. But prior to that, in February of 1992, there was a video by the band Metallica for the song Nothing Else Matters that came out. And when it came out, there is a segment of that. It's around three minutes of the video as you're watching it, where Lars can be seen picking darts out of a dartboard. And the picture that's on the dartboard is Kip Winger. Oh, shit. I never knew that. <laughs> so he was throwing darts at Kip Winger. Oh, wow. And in different interviews, you'll see, you know, comments made that basically that was Metallica saying, these guys aren't real metal. These guys are, you know, so so the band kind of felt that was like Metallica taking a shot at them, which clearly it was. And then they're deemed not cool by Metallica on the biggest album of all time. Yeah. Right. So at that point in time, there's Metallica has never been more mainstream than they were at that particular point in time. They're absolutely exploding everywhere. Nothing else matters is a song that even metalheads, non-metalheads, it's a huge like, hit, right? Yeah, yeah, huge hit. And here you are taking a shot at the band Winger, right? Which fed into that whole thing. So it was a combination of things that sort of created this idea that Winger was everything that was wrong with metal at that point from the hair metal standpoint there. And so 1993 was the Beavis, at least as far as I can see the timeline, I could be wrong about that. So feel free to correct me if someone has different information with that. But to me, it was the Metallica thing first and then the Beavis and Butthead thing, both of which were huge mainstream things that both contributed to this negative image of winger. And then you have, um, them put out this album. So, so the Beavis and Butthead thing happens in 1993 and you have the Pull album, which comes out in May of 1993. So a month after this album comes out is when that Beavis and Butthead right. video, uh, you know, uh, episode airs. But they must have had, maybe it was the Metallica thing then, I don't know. They must have had some idea because I uh, I think it might have been in the same interview. I saw Kit Winger say that he, at least now he claims, that he named it Pull because he joked 
that people would use it for clay pigeon shooting. Like, would stick the vinyl, oh, stick the vinyl on the launchers and, like, you know, use it for target practice. He claims, anyway, in retrospect, that that's why he called it pull. I don't know if that's true. That sounds a little convenient to me, but if it is true, then he must have had some idea, and maybe it was because of the Metallica thing. Well, and the funny thing was, in an interview with Howard Stern, so uh, Lars had kind of talked about this, and he said, in the Nothing Else Matters video, which was filmed at the studio while we were recording the Black Album, we had a dartboard. We'd get Cream Magazine, Circus Magazine, and we'd take posters of people who had who look particularly obnoxious uh, and put them up on the board and throw darts at them. There's a shot in that video of me throwing darts at Kip Winger. To this day, I apologize when it's brought up in interviews. It was nothing against Kip Winger personally. And isn't that like a social media moment of freaking like, to me, that's like a Twitter situation, right? right? Yeah. Where you, you have this band that, you know, you make a silly joke, not realizing how quickly, how much it's going to spread. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely devastating. Right. And, um, we'll never know how big of an impact that that had, because obviously, as we just talked about before, grunge was in full bloom right i mean by the time this album comes out like it wasn't like that particular incident or the beavis and butthead thing you know were single singularly responsible for any of that stuff but to paint the picture of like what this band had kind of going against them by the time this <laughs> album came out it was the landscape and the sentiment and the anti-hair metal it's you like, know sort of movement it's like a perfect storm isn't it yeah oh uh, uh, totally but what all i was going to say was yeah even without the metallica thing and the beavis and butthead thing they're still putting out an album that really does not fit, you know, the, in For 1993 sure. with the contemporary landscape of heavy music, you know, and I know grunge people, I, you know, complain if you call any of it heavy metal, but you know, fuck off Soundgarden and Alice in Chains are absolutely heavy metal bands. Um, but regardless, it's heavy music. You know, it is loud guitar driven, heavy music, whether you call it heavy metal or not. And so to put out an album that sounds like this, when that is what's riding high in the charts, is it was never going to be a huge hit. There's, there was no way this album was ever going to sell the millions that the previous albums did, not in 1993. And I personally think that the appreciation that Winger fans have for this album now is actually due to the Best Of album that came out in 2001. So I think like, and for me, this is true as well. Like I had a very passing familiarity with this album when it first came out in 1993. And for me, it was for a a more concrete reason, which is that I graduated high school in 1992. Right. When I went to college, my music listening didn't die off, but it completely changed for a period of time because people I was going to school with were listening to different things than that. Like I, I distinctly remember having facelift in my collection, like in my freshman year in the dorm and stuff like that. But also like I, when I was in high school, I worked next to the music store. I worked at the grocery store. I would go and work my part-time job. I would get my check cashed at the grocery store. And my friend and I would both walk over to the music store and buy every album that came out that week. And we did that for four and a half years from eighth grade through senior year of high school. We bought everything and we would, I would buy one and he would buy a different one and we would make tapes of them for each other and stuff like that. So we were so plugged in to everything that was coming out. And for winger, like their first two albums both came out when I was in high school. Mm. 
So when I was in that groove of buying every, and that that's the case for a lot of these, um, you know, th- like kind of last wave hair metal bands is that, uh, and even for the earlier wave hair metal bands, like some of the best albums in that genre came out between, you know, 88 and 92, which were my high school years. And so that's for me why it's such a defining period of time. 93, I'm in college already. So I don't have the same relationship with this poll album that I had with the first two albums at that particular point in time. And so, but when they put out their best of album in 2001, like half of this album is on it. Oh, wow. So, so off of this album, uh, Blind Revolution Mad, Down Incognito, Spell I'm Under, Who's the One, Junkyard Dog, Hell to Pay, which we'll talk about later, which is the bonus track off of this album. Um, so you have one, two, three, four, five songs off of this album and the bonus track off of this album. So six total songs wow. on their greatest hits album. Uh, there were 16 songs on that album, so they had all of their singles right, and stuff on there, too. but a third of the album but, is, yeah, and, is one of their three albums, yeah. Well, and I would like to see, and I didn't find this in an interview anywhere, but it almost feels like they reissued that album on their Greatest Hits album <laughs> for everybody that had missed it. You know what I mean? Or at least kind of pulled the songs that, uh, it was like the single and then probably some other songs that they thought that people should have checked out that maybe they didn't get a chance to earlier. But that really is where... The the greatness for me as a Winger fan of this album really hit me. When I listened to that Greatest Hits album, and I'm like, geez, these are all, holy crap, these are all off of pull. Like, I need to go back and really <laughs> listen to that album, like, in a different way. And so I think a lot of Winger fans, like, this album hit them with that Greatest Hits album. And then they kind of retroactively look back on this album as one of the best albums that Winger has put out. Um before we get into the, the the songs and stuff here, I will also say that if if you were passingly familiar with Winger, if you dug this album at all, of their later albums, I would suggest Karma, uh, which is considered, I think, to be their best album of their you know um, later albums. It, it is uh, it, it has a kinship with this album, I think. And so, if you kind of dug this, um, but yeah, it's just like it's a crazy. Uh, history, you know, at that point in time. And the other thing, too, that I think led to, uh, you know, when you're kind of becoming the the poster band for everything that's wrong with hair metal is I know that Kip has said in multiple interviews that like David Lee Roth and Paul Stanley were two of his biggest influences as far as like lead singer stage presence sort of thing. You combine that with his ballet background and you combine that with their early videos. Oh yeah, it and what shows you'll in notice the videos in, for sure, yeah. 100%. What you'll notice in those early videos is there's a lot of Kip jumping around, doing splits, uh jumping off platforms twirling, and, and kind of yeah. landing on his knees and stuff like that, uh twirling around, all that stuff. And also, there's a lot of him barely touching the bass at all. And which is wild because he is the lead songwriter of this band. He's an incredible bass player. He's classically trained. He is, uh, and when you listen to the bass lines on this album and many of their albums, they're fantastic. So then you watch the video of him playing, and he might once every 30 seconds pluck a couple of strings on the bass. (laughs) (laughs) And so it almost came across too like this is a manufactured band. This is, um, 
you know, you that couldn't he, make that he's argument a lead with singer Red Beach, obviously. And nothing else, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent, dude, lead singer who maybe he doesn't even play his own instrument, and then you've got this, you know, virtuoso guitar player that they've clearly built the band around and stuff like that, and that couldn't be a, a, a more misrepresentative of the musical talent and the and like how this this music actually comes together, and so just like those those things do him no favors whatsoever. All right, well, let's start talking about the uh, album itself then, or yeah, the tracks on the album, I should say. Uh, before I, we do, let's just give the stats. So it was, yeah, 1993, there are 10 songs on this album. It's 47 minutes long, which is slightly, well, it's slightly long for a hair metal album, not so long for a progressive album, which yes. is the, yeah. you know, the dichotomy, as you were saying, between the sort of two sides of the band. Um Produced by Mike Shipley, only a trio of musicians. I thought found that interesting. I hadn't realised that until I looked it yes, up. But it's because... literally it's just Winger, Red Beach, the guitarist, and Rod Morgenstein, the drummer. And it was, I believe, right after they did the tour for the second album in the Heart of the Young. Paul Taylor left the band, and at the time cited exhaustion just after years of touring. And so they went and did this as a as a three piece and. Um, yeah, it sounds yeah, good so for a little bit different piece. lineup. Yeah. yeah, I would I would totally agree. Yeah. All right. Well, let's begin then with the album opener, track 1, Blind Revolution Mad. Probably one of my favorite winger songs of anything they've ever done. Um, really? Wow. And I, straight I feel off the bat. <laughs> like, straight off the bat. And I feel like this, this song to me tells you that you're in for something different than maybe what the last two albums have offered. But doesn't um, not, the first again, not album to say, open with like acoustic guitar with him sort of crooning over it as well is madeline the first song on the first i think it is yeah and so i mean i would say it's potentially a signature of the band that they have a lot of songs that start with an acoustic intro or have some sort of acoustic interlude i I think they make liberal use of oh they do it a lot guitar in their songs for sure um and i just to kind of attribute that to like kip's musical um tastes Right. You know, just in terms of how a lot of those songs are put together, because there there are songs on this album that you could almost delete those parts entirely and you could still put together You'd a pretty decent a rock song. song. Yeah. Yeah. But I I it's a choice, clearly. Um, and one that I really here's what I love about the way that this starts. First of all, like I, I just I like the acoustical. Hello. Um, Have I lost you? Oh, no, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, some. Yeah, something. I'm not sure what happened there. 
Something went a bit unstable. Right, sorry. Uh, you, I can you, say I can say that over if you, you want to. You just it. said and one which I really, and then it just cut out. So do you want to go again? Yes. Um, it's a choice, you know, to have that acoustic element in the songs because they don't necessarily need it to to make some of these songs. But it's a choice that I think is not only aligned to sort of how Kip describes his musical taste, but just the way that they approach the traditional formula of like hair metal, you know what I mean? And as, so on, but on this song, like, I don't feel like this is a particularly hair metal-y song. I feel like there are some absolutely fantastic pieces that, that come together on the song. So first I love that this song starts with like on the bass note, like the bass comes in immediately on this song. The vocals come in immediately on this song. There's no, no lead everything's up. literally it, on the first, yeah, the first beat on on the first beat, which to me is uh, it almost kind of is jarring a little bit. The way that it kind of like you feel like maybe you missed you know the beginning of the song or something like that, but it just comes in like that. Um, immediately, I feel like you can hear how crisp the production is on this, and like the guitar sounds so good. Um, you could hear the fingers sliding on the frets, which to me, like, I like that um, because it, it feels human to me. Like, it mm. feels like you can actually hear them playing it, like, next to you in this thing. So I love that that guitar line. Um, I love the little kind of bass notes and little tiny sort of um, flourishes that are happening in the background, just to not taking away from the guitar line, but just kind of letting you know they're there. And then there's this point at one minute and 26 seconds on one note, the guitar line changes. And it's where he says, appears to be blind revolution mad, but it's this high note and it sort of turns and it, it kind of signals that the song is now, we're now kind of locking in, right? And then that builds up for the next 20 seconds of when the cymbal crash comes in and the song really kicks into its main groove and stuff like that. So I just, I just love the composition of that whole first minute and 30 seconds of the song and then how it just kicks in. Um, You hear the drums come in and then it just sort of kicks into the main groove and the bass is so thick on this song. And I, I feel like throughout the album and I just, I love the bass on this album. Um, this is an album where I feel like they do, I call it the reverse Dokken. Like with <laughs> Dokken and many other bands of the 80s era, the main riff is always what they start with. And it's repeated right, over and right. over again. Sometimes it's even repeated in the chorus. And not to say that Winger has never done that. But in some cases, like Winger saves the best riff for the chorus. And I love that. And so here, like the riff in the chorus is so sick that i just i just i love everything about the course i love the fact that he um when it sort of punches into the the word behold as the chorus kicks off right everything kind of builds up to that and then it punches and then the that riff is happening in the background i just love how the verse comes into the chorus in this song i love the riff of the chorus um i also think on this song you start to hear how Kip's voice and just his vocal delivery is really used to emphasize elements of the song throughout. And 
again, I just feel like that's not happening on a lot of 80s hair metal, traditional kind of hair metal albums and stuff like that. There's a moment here uh, where he's, it's like four minute and a half minutes in where he's like, don't try to stop me because I've already gone crazy. And he like draws out crazy and then like yells, oh, at the end of it. And just the way that uh, Reb is building up the guitar behind that, it just punctuates everything right there and goes right into the chorus again. Like there's just so many pieces like that, that I will like, as I'm listening to for this episode and making my notes and stuff, like I'll listen to it. I'll stop it. I'll, I'll scrub back. I'll listen to it again and I'll stop it. Like there's just so many little nuggets in these songs for me that I could listen to it forever and still pick out little pieces of that, which I know sounds like absolute, gibberish and crazy talk for like people who don't see any depth in this or like don't get anything out of that but for me it's like there's something about the way that these songs are put together that really aligns to the way that my brain processes music and it's just like super satisfying to me and so this first song has all of those things in it for me personally um, you know, the, the larger story about uh, misinformation, uh, media creation of uh, crisis, you know, uh, politics being this cyclical kind of nature, you know, the, the class war, like all of those things there he's talking about in different um, levels of coherence in, in the, you know, this particular song. But for me, it is it's the music. And so I love the, the acoustic intro. I love um, everything about this song. The thing that got me about the intro was that it's, it's almost two minutes until we actually get to the sort of rocking part of the song. It's a minute 30 when he starts, uh, as you said, like when he first says blind revolution mad, and then it's another 30 seconds of build up uh, to get to the actual, you know, the, the main riff and stuff. I do like the drama of that build up, um, And when it, you know, when it, finally kicks in with the guitars sort of uh single yep. note wails and all, and all that sort of stuff i don't think the main riff is particularly interesting but it, it suffices it's fine um but where it does get interesting for me yeah is that chord change into the chorus where he sings behold uh and modulates down and then in the chorus itself you've got the bassing and the guitar playing off one another and the vocals meanwhile are doing something else entirely they're almost com- completely unrelated to what the guitar is doing, which is interesting after that chord change, which actually is, that's probably the one of the few parts of this album that does sound like it belongs in 1993, because interesting, odd minor chord changes like that were a feature of a lot of grunge music. Um, so it's one of the few parts where I'm like, oh, actually, when I was first listening to this, and you'd said that, you know, they had... Uh, changed their sound a little bit for this album and i first heard that and i was like oh so they became a grunge band but of course that's not actually <laughs> I, no. I quickly realized that was not the case <laughs> it's uh, not you realize that in the next but that sure. one little bit was like oh okay fair enough you know that that does sound quite sort of contemporary for the time um the rest of it it's it's fine um yeah, I'm surprised that you like it as much as you do. Uh, you do you, I, I guess. I freaking love it. <laughs> I love it. I love this song. This this would be easily on my problem. If I was making a list of my maybe even top five winger songs, this would be on it. Uh, well, and you, you you said like, you know, by contrast, the next song. So let's let's move on to track two, Down Incognito. Down to the left, jokers to the right. 
which is one of the singles, I think, wasn't it? It is the, it's really the oh, single okay, off right. of this album. And, um, I, I'm, I mean, they may have released other singles, but it is the song. So this was interestingly the last song added to this album. It was one that it sounds like they brought the record to the studio and they sent them back to add another song to it. And, and it, what to me, like that implies like we need a radio single here. Like we need a, um, and so this was the last one. And this happened on, I wrote it down somewhere, but it happened on the last album as well. And so what I kind of took away from that is that there are uh, there are songs that get added. And I'm sure that these are not the only bands that this happens to. It happens to a ton of bands, especially during the heyday of like record deals and singles and stuff like that. And how do we market this album and stuff? It's like, yep, uh, album's good. We need, a, we need you to go back and put together something we could put on the radio, though. And so, um, this was the last song on the album and I don't want to say it sounds like it's the last song that they created for the album, but I, to me, like it, um, and it went to number 15 on the rock chart, by the way, just in terms of popularity. This is the only song also that I have noticed in even their current tours that they still play. And I think it's just because people know it. But off of this album, this is the song they play, which, like, if I was going to choose one song off this album to put in their set list it, it wouldn't be this for one. live shows, <laughs> it would. this would literally be the last one that I would choose to, to put oh. in, just because, like, oh God, no, I not because it it's the worst down, song but... in this album. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Right. Not because it's the worst song in this album, but because it is of an ilk that there's 15 other songs like this in Winger's discography oh, I see. that are better right, than right. this. You know what I mean? Like if we're going to do the the catchy chorus, cheesy, you know, um, sort of standard hair metal song, like I can give you five easily <laughs> off the first two albums that are better than this. Right. And so, um, so the fact that it's down incognito, like uh, just to me is, I guess what I would say about the song is it's fairly uninspired. Well, okay. So that's, that's interesting so i i mean you for a start you know i'm a sucker for bits where the guitar drops out and you've just got bass and drums and vocals and that happens here uh which oh totally which made me you know so immediately go oh you know Uh, and the chorus is really catchy it is clearly a very great catchy pop yeah radio friendly song um and the middle eight with the key change actually just kind of does again sound a little bit contemporary for the time the that fucking harmonica not so much could really uh, could really God, live without that why why the harmonica ever <laughs> but but <laughs> this song to me is symptomatic of the whole album in that it is i don't think it doesn't feel rushed to me at all it is an excellently constructed song it is well written mm-hmm. it is well arranged it shows uh a great deal of taste and songwriting skill it is catchy catchy it's well performed you know well executed it is there is nothing in this song that you can point to and go that's bad everything about it is good but <laughs> for all of that it does almost nothing for me uh, it's kind of like i was trying to think of it's a like com- a jimmy buffett song dude well no i was trying to think of a comparison like, it- here's a, so here's a good comparison that isn't sort of, you know, kind of in the same genre. Bruce Springsteen's early stuff. People fucking love Bruce Springsteen's early albums. And I listen to them and I can appreciate them. And I can even Mm -hmm. admire them. But I would never actually choose to put them on the record player. You know, they they just 
don't touch me at all. And that's kind of what this song and a lot of this album is like. I can really appreciate it. It is very, very well made. He is clearly an enormously talented songwriter. He does interesting and creative things with songs. He's not just sort of following standards and stuff you know he bucks against standards and puts in things that you don't expect that are very interesting it is genuinely very very well written but it just doesn't touch me for the most part you know i i actually love that explanation and and i would say when it comes to this song like i'm all in with you on that like that's how i would describe this song as well the rest of the album there are songs that deeply resonate with me on um and and sometimes it's and mostly it's just because of how the pieces fit together and um it just all comes together for me but like this song is i mentioned the jimmy buffett thing like i've actually seen kip winger perform uh solo and he's played this song acoustically and uh and it's a great it reminds me of like a Jimmy Buffett song like it's a song that everyone in the crowd knows it's a song that everybody can sing along to it's very easy to sing along with and it's got a good rhythm and melody and it's catchy and so but to me like that it feels like a Jimmy Buffett song like it doesn't do anything for me it's catchy it's it's it, it plays well to the crowd and stuff like that but it doesn't to me it doesn't meet the standard of like the song that came before it, right? It doesn't, which doesn't I felt like you. is just a superior, um, from a progressive standpoint, but just from a compositional standpoint, like the whole thing. Um, and, and like again, uh, to me, this harkens back to the single, you know, uh, sort of style of songs that their early albums were known for. Yeah, you know, it's a very, it's a very much a radio friendly. It, it really is yeah and, and it sounds like yeah. it. and like i say that's not you know that in itself isn't a bad thing but yeah anyway so and here's the thing like i never skip it so i like i would never skip the song as i play through it's an enjoyable listen for me and and it's like a decent summer song you know what i mean like right, it's right. it's uh it's a it's an enjoyable listen it just doesn't but it's nothing do more much than for that. me yeah correct yeah. yeah all right let's move on to track three spell i'm under freaking love this song really <laughs> we're, wow. we're right, they got me the, right back the bastard right ballad back. i mean i mean not the only one on this album buddy but... ballad it up with this band because they're so good like the <laughs> the acoustic guitar lines are so freaking good with this band that honestly like i just love i love the guitar line of this song i love the use of the background vocals here where you know he plays the um that first sort of line of the acoustic guitar line there. And then you hear the background vocals come in and again, the song called spell I'm under. So it has sort of this, you know, um, 
ethereal kind of feel to the background vocals and stuff like that. This song actually reminds me a little bit of Led Zeppelin's Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. Um, uh, just in terms of like it's it's uh it's approach i'm not saying it's as as good as that song or anything like that but i do i do hear a little a bit of that zeppelin in um in this song but i like that this song once it kicks in and you've got the drums and stuff like that it feels very open like they let stuff breathe in this song um to your point about like with down incognito like there's that main line playing but like not a lot underneath it like the the drums are used kind of sparingly enough and and stuff like that, so it's like accenting what the guitar is doing as opposed to like in lockstep with it the whole time, right? It feels um, it just feels like the song feels kind of it, it, it breathes. Um, was this ever? Was this a way. single? That's a great this question because when I I'd have to look back when, at it when I listen to this song, I can literally picture the music video in my head, like every every moment of it. It I feel like I heard a thousand songs like this in the late nineteen eighties, and they all had the same fucking video, and they were all just but they weren't done this completely good, interchangeable. They weren't this good. Uh, I don't I don't know, man. Go back it's, and listen to all the other thousand songs. They they're not as good as this one. I'm a, telling you, it's a good example of the type of song that it is. But that type of song just is not for me, man. Like the one thing I okay, like well, about let me it. Try to sell the you. one thing I like about it that you mentioned actually is the rhythm of the chorus where you've got like beats coming in the third bar instead of the fourth and, you know, sort of uh, unusual emphasis again, you know, nice little touch, a little songwriting gag, if you like. Um, like I say, I'm not disparaging the guy's songwriting skills at all, but the song as a whole, nah. What about the way that the electric guitar kind of responds in the chorus and, and you have the kind of that little lick, uh, because it is a very acoustically driven yeah but I, song. again it's yeah it's a nice little touch but it's not enough it's not enough to make the song a couple well then i'll just say a couple other things i like about it we can move on uh <laughs> one is i love that that little uh riff he it he repeats it at the end of the song they go like they yeah. it, they run an extra you know time around on it which i really really like i also like there's times in the song um and it might be the last time that they get to that chorus where you have kip uh not kip you have reb who is kind of building up he's got like a little little guitar lick that kind of builds up into the chorus you know as kip's voice is going up and he's building up to the chorus like they he's just like accenting that climb to the chorus. And I really like just how I feel like these two, like uh, Kip and Reb and Kip has talked about in different interviews and stuff like that, that a lot of times, like they will just get in and start writing stuff together where, you know, like uh Reb might come up with a riff. He'll play around with it or they'll come up with a basic idea. They'll play like Reb will come up with three or four ideas of how to do that. And then Kip will come back in and they'll work through it and stuff like that. Like the two of them, um, are the constant and the core, I think, of of the songwriting for this band. And so I just like the way that they complement one another, whether it's Kip and uh, Kip's vocals and Reb sort of um, adding punch to certain parts of the vocals, or it's the way that the bass adds punch to something that the guitar is doing. Like, I just love their the way that they complement each other. And I, I feel like there's little pieces of this song where the way that Reb will build into a chorus or just 
accent something that Kip is doing. I just really, really like that. There's a kind of a a loose feel to it, which to me, Reb Beach's guitar playing is so technically mind-blowing. But at the same time, there are times where he it just feels like very improvisational and effortless, which is almost the opposite of like how technical this their stuff is it just it, it's weird but i i do feel like they have a really good um partnership like even within the song if that makes sense yeah no they clearly do work well together yeah that's uh and the the sort of playing being good enough to play loose is absolutely uh, a skill you know sort of being actually so technical that you can choose to make it sound like you're playing loose, you know, is the sign yeah. of, of a really talented player. Uh, track four then in my veins. This song to me, um, I don't know how familiar you are with the band Extreme. Uh, <laughs> I, I know of Extreme, and it's funny you should say that. I did. I didn't make the. I didn't make a direct comparison necessarily, but in my notes, like the first thing I've got is, I am surprised that more of Winger's songs don't sound like this because of him. It's very funk. Well, because of him driven. being a bassist. So you know, and yeah. many many bassists are into sort of funk or even quasi funk stuff. So I'm surprised that this is the only track on this album that sounds like this yeah this has a very get the funk out feel from uh extreme for those extreme fans out there and it does have a very um i also like the way that reb's playing in this song i think it has a very sort of raw um almost like scratchy you know approach that he has in this song uh it's not as tight as some of their other songs and so it fits the vibe of the song really well um i like the way this kind of opens you know with that with that um with Reb kind of shredding as they kick the song. And then it kicks into this, you know, very funk groove. Um, there's a point in the song about three minutes in where Kip's voice is kind of getting more manic, uh, you know, and you have the guitar line kind of escalating at the same time. And so this to me is a good example of a song that like, it's not doing anything crazy, but even the way they're implementing a song like this, they're having fun with it and they're, you know, um, there's an element of looseness to this song that maybe isn't as present on some of their other stuff, which, um, you know, feels very tightly constructed. That, that is funny that you should say that they're obviously having fun playing it because the other thing I put in my notes was this sounds exactly like the sort of song that they love, that the band love playing. 
you can imagine them really, really enjoying playing this. It sounds like a great, great song to just kind of just jam and, yeah, really have fun playing um, while everyone in the crowd goes and takes a piss. Like, this is the song where they <laughs> where they go, oh, it's this one, right, okay, we've got five minutes, quick, let's let's run out. Like, it really sounds like a song that is much more fun to play than to listen to, to me. <laughs> and the shame of it is, like, I don't think I've ever seen them play this song live. And so really? I would love to see them play it live because it seems like they would have a lot of fun with it, right? Um, it has almost like a jam feel to exactly, it, right? Yeah, Especially yeah. as you get towards the end of the song. And, and uh, you know, shout out to Rod Morgenstein here. Like, I think that when you talk about how amazing of a guitar player that Red Beach is, that often overshadows um, and obviously Kip Winger, especially now that that he's Grammy-nominated classical composer, like the conversation is always about Reb and Kip. Rod Morgenstein, amazing drummer. He does always what the song needs, um, never kind of shows off. There's a song here where he does get to show off a little bit towards the end of the song. But like overall, um, but when you listen through and kind of hear some of the stuff that he's doing, it is more progressive than it than it sounds on first listen. Well, he's originally um, a jazz drummer. But he just doesn't get a lot of... Yeah, and, and you can hear that yeah. in some of the songs. And, and like he'll just add little just little bits here and there that doesn't doesn't distract from the song. Just uh, And that's what I feel like, again, and I mentioned with Kip and, and uh, Reb as well, I feel like they do a good job of like emphasizing things with the way they play off of one another. Like, oh, oh yeah, we want to yeah. emphasize this, want to emphasize this word, or we want to emphasize this beat, or we want to emphasize, like, here's where we're going into the chorus. And so whether it's a, the drums, or whether it's the bass, or whether it's the guitar, and a lot of times it's different ones, they just are paying attention to those little things where I feel like most hair metal bands, they're not even thinking about that. Yeah, no, the, <laughs> like they're not. The arrangement of the songs, again, you know, correct. Is, is part yeah, it's, of what it's arrangement is yeah, what I keep thinking. Is, yeah, is great. You know, it's very, it, like I said, they're extremely intelligently written, you know, clearly by people who understand how songwriting works and put a lot of thought into it. Um, yeah, no question about that. But let us move on to the midpoint of the album Junkyard Dog Tears on Stone. What a title. It is maybe not the best title, but I will also say uh, you could argue that this is the best song on the album. I don't know that I feel like this is the best song on the album, but it's definitely up there. Oh, I do. It's, it's in the top three yeah. for sure. No, th- this is the best song um, on the album for me, no question. 
I mean, and, and what not I, just because it's the longest song on the album. <laughs> um, well, no, you, why don't you, do you take the lead on this one? Because I would love to hear why you think this is the best well, song. Well, it, it does, like I was going to say, not just because it's the longest on the album, and it also does that proggy thing of basically having two completely different movements. Um, it is also, I think, the most contemporary sounding track. This is the one track on the album where you're like, yeah, this sounds like it belongs in 1993. Um, I like the the initial sort of off kilter beat before it kicks into the regular riff. It's got a good chorus. Uh, and that's all fine. But then four minutes in, we get the second part, which is more or less an entirely new song. And that really elevates it for me. The vocal is a bit over the top, which I know is his style, uh, but it is for that second section. I think it's maybe a bit too much, but I do really like it, especially the, uh, there's an extended chorus at the end where you expect him to go into the tears on stone line, but instead he inserts an extra line first and makes you wait for it. That's again, intelligent songwriting. So good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. This and funnily enough and down incognito (laughs) are the two songs that actually stuck in my memory. The first few times I heard this album, a lot of the rest of this album just doesn't stay in my memory for more than like 10, 15 minutes. But this and down incognito did uh which i think is i will take it yeah well, it's you know i think that's a test i'll take that as a win because like <laughs> i agree with you this song is freaking awesome and what i love about the second part of the song is you've got this first part of the song that um to me very clearly is talking about drug addiction and then you have the second part of the song that is like from the perspective of the person who didn't do enough well, to intervene. And I was going to say, is this, and you you may know, or maybe you don't know, but I wondered all the way through, like, is this about a real person? Because I don't know. the first part of it, the first part, the lyrics are a fairly generic sort of good kid turned to drugs story, you know, an important story, but one we've heard many times and in many songs. But that second half, the tears on stone bit feels way more personal. There's something about those lyrics that I'm like, this sounds like you're talking about somebody you knew. You know, this sounds like I mean, it's I, from I, Kip Winger's perspective talking about a friend that he lost to heroin or something. I mean, this is a guy who has suffered tragedy in his life. His first wife died in a car accident. and um, But the drug addiction piece and this particular song, I haven't read anything about like who this might be specifically about. But I can only imagine after spending, you know, a decade and a half in the music business probably uh, is that's about a fair point that actually knows, yeah, right? yeah you yeah. know uh especially in, you know, in the at 80s that especially time. the odds are uh, for it yeah dude the 80s that just that whole music scene and you know just the casualties of it right and so Wait. but i that's the thing that i love about this song is the thematic um you know you get the, you get this like the heavier elements of the song are like now now this thing's got you in its grasp right and there's nothing you can do and then the last part of the song is like what could i have done yeah you know i didn't act soon enough i didn't act when i had a chance and now i just can you know cry about what could have been i had one of my favorite things i'll just say i had to check the the years because i kind of forgot for a moment I was listening to it on a train, so I didn't sort of, you know, it's not like I had Wikipedia open in front of me. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I thought, hang on a minute, is he singing about Lane Staley? And obviously he's not, because this was, you know, Lane Staley was still alive and relatively well when this was recorded. But there, there are, and I think that just, maybe that just speaks to, unfortunately, the universal tragedy of people who do 
uh, succumb to heroin addiction and overdoses is there's a lot of this song where you're like, oh, this really sounds like he's singing about Lane. And I don't know if they um, even knew one another, you know, but it just occurred. It I just, don't either. It's just like I say, it couldn't possibly be because the timeline's wrong. But yeah, there's a lot, you know, knowing what we know now about Lane Staley's life and death, you know, you read these lyrics in a wholly different light. They could, I'm not saying they do, as I say, but you know, you could read them very much. Uh, that feel very appropriate to to his situation, which is very sad. I know I've also mentioned, I think I mentioned it on um, Spell I'm Under, like the background vocals thing, but it also like it cannot be overstated. Two things. Number one, how good the background vocals are on all of Winger's albums, but definitely in this album, how they're also used to great effect in certain areas. Um, also, how what an amazing singer Reb Beach is. He is a tremendous singer in his own right. And to have the two of them together, um, I think it was... Was it the first song on the album? Um, I think it is where there's there's a song, and I think it's the first song on the album where they're singing together, but Reb is just like a tiny bit behind what Kip is singing, and you can really distinctly uh, hear right. their separate voices, and it's really really good. Um, but he's a great singer, and in this one, like they're when they're in the second half of this song. And he's, you know, talking about his regret and everything. It's a line that comes up several times over the song, but it's like, look what you've done now. And the background vocals sing that. And just the way, the high and low of that vocal, you know, that phrase in the background vocals is so good. Um, It really, to me, just like even makes the back half of the song resonate even more. Like it just like that feeling of regret and that feeling of loss is just like so present. It's palpable in yeah. the back part of the song. It is. It's so good, dude. And so um, I love that this is your favorite song in the album because it is. It's so good, um, and I think is a great example of like what they're trying to do that is breaking the mold of of you know the genre that they've been a part of for a decade. It's for right? sure the least hair metal song on the album, without question. Yeah. Also, the one where, like, there's a little Megadeth in here, too, where you get to the, uh, I would say, cryptic writings era Megadeth. uh, The riff that is under the solo of this song is really good Um, and different from the rest of the song. Mm. Uh, It's good stuff. Um, Also, I'll mention on here is, like, by and large, even though I'm sure these uh, solos can sound noodly um, to you, Anthony, who has a very low tolerance for that stuff, like, if you listen to their first couple albums, like... These are extremely short solos compared to really? the solos on other albums. Like they, th- to me, like the solos on this album are more in service of the songs. And there's other where other places in the songs where Reb is expressing himself, like whether it's at the end or whether it's to accent something. Um, but yeah, by and large, the solos in general are much more subdued than their early stuff. Oh, it went along with the times, didn't it? Like if if being in a hair metal band was the worst thing you could be in 1993. Being a lead guitarist was surely second worst. <laughs> totally. Uh, track six, The Lucky One.
I mean, yeah, it's this kind of a come do down, a ton. It? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do a ton for me. Um, I like Reb's guitar work on this one. I like the acoustic lead in. There's an effect where it kind of feels like it's swirling from ear to ear when you're listening to it with, uh, you know, in stereo. Um, I like in the second verse, I made a note here how like the like the double is it double tracked vocals? Is that how you? how you when describe it, it but like the, winger doing the same vocal twice yeah yeah when it's yeah it's him uh but the, like in the verse two like the way that it's done they use a little bit of that um i feel like the solo in this song is kind of understated and pretty emotional that matches kind of the the vibe of the song um so yeah like I, the lucky one to me is a is a song that is not neither good nor bad <laughs> like on this album like it's just not it's tough to follow junkyard dog i'd go along like with it's that, yeah. that's that's a tough song to follow and you kind of need a palate cleanser because even if you were trying to keep up with that same high i don't know you're able to meet that two songs in a row yeah, right maybe not. um which is also why i kind of like the fact that um you know blind revolution mad which i think is is a high point starts the album and then smack dab in the middle, at number five, we get Junkyard Dog, which I think is another high point um, in that. And so I like that there's space between those two songs. And again, like, you know, this this song, I don't know how it couldn't feel like a letdown from Junkyard Dog. Yeah, but did it have to be quite such a letdown? <laughs> I mean, it, it is... I'll, I'll hear that. It's perfectly pleasant. You know, it is, again, not bad. It's well written, blah, blah, blah. You know, the one thing I like about it that appeals to me is the the guitar, the wailing guitar over the acoustic at the start, which is quite nice. But the rest of it is just like, again, it's another another ballad. I've heard it a thousand times before. There's nothing really special like, about it. It's well done, but it's not, you know. But like like in that second verse, like it, it goes bum, 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 and they let the third one kind of ring out as the vocals are kind of going like there are like even within a song that yeah again intelligent songwriting no question yeah yeah and that's what i mean like it's like there's like even when you listen back through it you're like oh i do like that little part that they did there or i do like how they let that part breathe like it's it to me part of the problem is and i you know if you're not a winger it's gonna sound cheesy but it's almost like an embarrassment of riches like even their ho-hum 
you know, songs, there's something in that song that you're like, oh, I like that thing that they did, or I like that thing that they did. Like, there's always something to appreciate, even if it's not... Sure, um, and, and I do appreciate those things, but as as a non fan, it's not enough to rescue the whole song. Not, right? Me, yeah, you know? you're not you're not adding it to the playlist anytime. Exactly. Soon. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move yeah. on from this one to track seven. In for the kill. Times are changing. We best beware. The world is in the electric chair. The state holds out its loving cup, singing power to the people, but the power's corrupt. Burning crosses and secretly carry swastikas and M16s. Never mind the pages of history, it just keeps repeating. To me, another high point. I freaking love this song. The riff in the chorus is just filthy. It is so freaking good. Um, I like the kind of church organ to start. I love how this song like punctuates certain elements. Um, oh God, there's so many good parts. Like there's like the the line we pay to wear the blindfold. So good. Um, and then there's a part where he delivers that line, and then he says, baby, look out, and then, boom, the chorus kicks in. It's so freaking awesome. Um, Reb does another thing where he, like, does a, a little build-up to the chorus. Like, just the way he plays into the chorus is so good. It's like a minute into the song. Um, I like the verses where it's just the bass and sort of the keyboards, and then you get a nice pick slide into the guitar riff. Um, the way he delivers the line in for the kill is so good. Um, the solo is kind of proggy in the way that the it almost feels like an interlude in in the song. Um, but yeah, and then uh, on the back end of the solo, you get like a funk bass, kind of a slap bass sort of thing. Um, but my favorite part of this song is that the whole like concept of like don't fill my eyes and and my head you know, I'm getting overloaded. You talk and you talk and they kind of repeat that. Well, as the song goes on in, especially towards the end of the song, there's like a spiraling and a layering of that where they start then singing the chorus lyric on top of it. Yeah. And it is, it's almost like a cacophony and it's like, it's designed that way to be overwhelmed, like to just keep layering on top of itself. And I know you're not a fan of the non ending of the song, but I feel like in this song, that whole like spiral feels right for what they're kind of going for in this song. And so I, I really, really, really like this song. Yeah. I, I don't. (laughs) Oh, damn it. (laughs) Um, Is that DJ scratching I hear at the start of this song? Okay. Okay. I knew you were going to bring that up. Here's the thing. It is a concern when, you hear that before the song starts and you think to yourself, oh shit, are they going to do some sort of 
attempt at rap oh, or well, no like, i was pretty sure we they weren't going to attempt to like p- play a rage against the machine song or something but i was just really surprised but to hear like scratching the, <laughs> yeah just like that you do hear and you're like oh boy what are we doing here like are and then they don't like that element, you could remove it from the song completely. It has nothing to do with the song. Right, but that's, that's um, so not I a don't good know thing. why they did that either. <laughs> now I understand that, but also like it's kind of before the song even starts, right? And so it doesn't. One of the things I I don't know. It's almost like a red herring. It doesn't it doesn't have an impact on the song. I don't true, think. True. True. One of the things I do like about this song actually is the organ. Like I I don't know if maybe they put that originally in under the part about corrupt preachers and then thought hey actually let's use it for the whole song Uh, it is unusual because obviously it doesn't appear anywhere else on the album but that's quite nice and these are by far the most overtly political of the lyrics uh on the album which is nice um yeah i like those overlapping vocals like you but the rest of it uh, yeah this feels like the album this feels like the dip you know track seven here we go here's the dip um this is the metal argument because i could not uh, disagree more with that (laughs) like i feel like after the kind of minor letdown that the previous song was i feel like this song just freaking locks me in for the rest of the album oh no 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 this this continues the dip for me i mean yeah lucky one is is a come down (laughs) from track five and then yeah this doesn't really redeem it much for me sorry (laughs) well let's let's move on it hurts me but i will move on right track eight no man's land love the riff of this song i to me this is more of the docking uh you know approach where you kind of get the riff right out of the gate um of of what the riff is but this one has a great groove to it um i wouldn't call it funk i think more the the next song has a little bit more of that but i do feel like this is you know it's three minutes and 17 seconds this is a kind of a straight ahead um but to me like there. I know you said that Down Incognito kind of sticks out a little bit more. I think that might be a little more catchy, whereas I feel like this is a better song. Like, of that kind of ilk, right? Of the whole, like, three-minute, you know, verse-chorus solo sort of approach to a a rock song, to me, this one feels a lot tighter and uh, better. So I like the riff better here. I I feel like it's a good tune. It's certainly more rocky than Down Incognito. Uh, and there's any question of that. Yeah, it's, it's fine. I mean, this is an improvement on the previous couple of songs. Uh, I think for me, it is, you know, it's got a bit more energy to it. Um, even though it sounds, 
this is one of the most sort of I guess traditional hair metal sounding songs on the album, yeah. like you could say. Um, but it is again well written, you know, well done. The pre-chorus, the when he starts singing "One More Fever," digging for fools, got yeah. that sounds so familiar, and I cannot place where from. Like not from this album, not from another winger song or something, but just of the era, right? There's something literally that specifically yeah. that one more fever just reminds me. Is it me, more than a feeling from Boston? Oh yes, it is. Yes, it fucking is. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I'm racking now my you brain. won't have to lose sleep tonight. I'm racking my brain trying to think, what does that sound like? Yes, that's what it sounds like. I just could not fucking place it. Um, but yeah, it's fine. This is, I would rather listen to this song than either of the previous two. That's all I can say. <laughs> what I like about this too is like halfway through like each verse, there's that little speed up where he kind of talks a little bit faster, but Reb's guitar is like, like he speeds up there. So even like, that's another great example, right? Of even in a song that might feel, I don't want to say like traditional, like they're doing some nice little things in there. So yeah, I dig No Man's Land. Like a Ritual. Okay, so yeah, let's get to that track nine, penultimate track, Like a Ritual. She said I'm naked in the jungle There I see you're blocking my path Watch what you do This is another one, like, the, the, a kind of a bit of a funk vibe here, a little bit of a scratchy guitar. To me, the most interesting part of the song is is uh, towards the end of it, because on both this song and on the final song, they have Alex Acuna, who is providing percussion. Now, he is a guy who has a ridiculously long resume, um, a guy who's done a ton of studio sessions. I thought I pulled up his... Uh, his resume here, but this guy has worked on everything from uh, every band that you ever know about to the Star Wars series in terms of helping provide oh, right. um, scores and soundtracks for them. The Spider-Man, including uh, the recent No Way Home, he provided percussion on. Like This guy's like a legend um, as far as percussion goes and has been on a ton of albums and a ton of musical scores as well. So um, the fact that he's providing, because at the end of this is kind of like a, almost like a jam. From there's there's sort of two pieces happening. To me, there's Rod's piece and there is Alex's piece that are kind of happening over one another, and then they come into sync at the very end of them. Yeah, I don't know whether I'd call it a jam. I mean, it's very clearly written to be a drum duet thing, you know, drum and percussion duet thing. But yeah, it's so. I mean, this song, man, the lyrics are so embarrassing. Like we, we haven't talked about the lyrics that much on this, but these really are the worst lyrics on the album. This is so bad. Um, I I like the chorus musically. 
Again, the sort of like, you know, extended wailing guitar, single notes underneath the vocals. I'm a sucker for that. Um, musically, the whole song is fairly interesting. You know, it's sort of, again, you know, energetic and does some nice things. But yeah, the lyrics are so bad. And then the drums at the end, it, they're good, but it is so predictable. Like, it's called like a ritual. Oh, let's get a percussion. I know, I know, I know. Come on. (laughs) I was like, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh no. Oh, please don't. Oh my God, they're doing it. (laughs) Right. Well, so this is like, uh, in terms of like being on the nose, it's like the thing that you feared with the record scratch a couple songs ago. Like you (laughs) hear they actually do it. Yeah. Oh man, they did it. Yep. They did it. And again, it's well executed. They're clearly very, very good drummers and percussionists like not knocking their performance whatsoever but the decision to do that on this song oh god i know and you're just like what year is it yeah, again okay. massive eye roll uh, emoji you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally uh a hundred percent dude so uh to me doesn't you know to me like this is a song that if we lost this song off the album, it wouldn't. Oh, you could lose this. It easily. wouldn't blow yeah, me away. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, again, musically, it, it's not that bad, but l- lyrically, just yeah, off. Uh, but so let's go to the album closer then. Track ten. Who's the one? When the colors are This is another song that I've seen him play solo uh, when he's played acoustically. To me, this is an excellent song. I don't think it's the closer. Like, I just don't. Like, it's, it's interesting. To, to, okay. me, to me, it's a very well written song. It's, and I think it's a great piece of music. And I do like listening to this song. But for, I'm looking for something a little bit different from the last track and like to me the last track on the album is the song that makes me immediately want to flip the record over and start listening to it again right and i just don't know i don't know where like if we dumped like a ritual bumped this down to nine and then closed with like no man's land now we're talking now we're getting me right back into the groove and flipping that record over and starting over again so um so yeah i might have switched up the order of the last few songs here on this one but i do like this song and i i feel like it would have been better served having been more towards the middle and less and definitely not the closer because i think it does it a disservice but i do like this I, i can see that it would work solo as a solo acoustic number as well absolutely yeah i can you know 
don't think there's any question of that. Is it just me, or is this track mastered louder than the rest of the album? Maybe it's just the copy that I have or something, but I always have to turn the volume down a notch when this one comes on, compared, which considering that it is such a sort of relatively quiet song, you know, musically. I didn't so notice bizarre. that, but I do feel like the acoustic guitars on this are really... They're really pumped up. Super up front. Yeah. 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 Um, oh, it's, it's the second most overtly political <laughs> lyric on the album. Um, uh, it's probably the best lyrics on the album, I think. I mean, I feel like he has said this too. Like he feels like this, this one, um, I forget what songs he said were, he felt like he were the best lyrics that he wrote, but this was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Junkyard Dog, as I say, I think the lyrics on that are very good. Um, I'd probably put them, you know, second behind this, but I do think these are the best lyrics on the album. There's an art and a poetry and lyricism to these lyrics that I think is just way ahead of pretty much anything else on the album. Um, it does have an air of like, oh, the poor oppressed rich white man about it, which I'm not yeah. crazy about, but that is that is as, as much a symptom of the times, unfortunately, you know, as the sexism was of the late 80s hair metal stuff. So the intentions are clearly good. So I'm prepared to sort of, you know, forgive that in context but it is unfortunate um i mean if you're looking for unforgivable sins of this band you don't have to look any further than the song 17 on the first album so yeah there's definitely uh and then on this album in particular like like a ritual right like you you have the one that you can clearly be like yeah this is right as sins go this is pretty (laughs) minor (laughs) this is not great right yes um i I am but i I am like i mean i am amused that the literally the last two minutes and this is this speaks to what you were saying about it being a closer the last two minutes of this album are just the same guitar phrase repeated over and over with no foreground vocals or lyrics at all two minutes which again it's a nice melody right it's a nice piece of music but if that is the last song in your album does that immediately make you be like yeah let's flip this bad boy over and start over again no to me it's like then maybe you know we don't talk a lot about this but i think for some albums like uh, i'm sure the intent of the artist is like maybe for you to sit with it for a little while. So I can get that too. And maybe they, maybe he thought like, where else on the album am I going to put this That's song? The because thing. Where else could as it you go? mentioned yeah. that last two minutes, where are you going to tuck that in? Well, but e- even like without that, else? even if the song ended when the main lyrics finish and we didn't have the two minute musical coda at the end, where else could you put this song with these lyrics? It, 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 yeah. it It's so apart from, uh, is it in for the kill apart from, that yes apart from that song it's so unlike lyrically unlike any other song on the album maybe blind revolution mad right but that's the first song on the album so right so you can't you put definitely, this you can't put this second correct you cannot <laughs> no i know you would just kill the momentum of the entire album yeah. absolutely so maybe it is uh I, so i guess where that would leave me then is like just i don't know where else you could put it but the closer but also i don't know that it's an effective closer for what i think of as right well as what i'm trying to get out of a closer i think song. the answer is just chop off the last two minutes <laughs> just lose yeah, those two minutes right. you know um because then it would have been four minutes instead of six and you still got a really solid song right there. and it, it, yeah it's such just such a weird choice to to do that on the last track but as i say Shall but i do we... like this track Shall we talk about the bonus track? Oh, yes. So um, the Japanese version of this album had a bonus track, as many albums did uh, back in that day. This track is also on the Greatest Hits album. I think it's the very best of Winger that came out in 2001, and it is called Hell to Pay. 
Yes. And, and I I only heard this track for the first time this morning when you posted a link to it on YouTube for me to listen to. <laughs> and I didn't realize until today how very much this song is geared toward Metallica because I had never looked at the lyrics or paid close enough attention right. to them. And on but, on that video, on that YouTube video, the lyrics are there and I listened to it and then I read the lyrics and listened to it again and I said to you like it feels like this track should just be called Fuck You James. <laughs> well, actually, it would be fuck you, Lars, because Lars is the one in the Metallica video that is taking a shot. Uh, I suppose, at, uh, yeah. yeah. Is throwing darts at him. But yes. Um, so this is a song about like karma coming back around. You know, whatever you what you do comes back to you. So a couple of lyrics here. Uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, don't you know that there'll be hell to pay? You'll be paying till your dying day. Uh, but there's a part in the middle of the yeah. song where here's the lyrics. It's sad but true, you tread on me as if nothing else matters, my friend of misery. Your struggle within is that you believe you're beyond them, the God that failed you, and when you finally find out what you're after is when your servant becomes your master. And it so, ain't subtle. <laughs> uh, it's not subtle at all. Um, and now, uh, he has said in interviews both back in the day, and I don't know if it comes up much nowadays, but like one of the things that frustrated him the most is that he didn't feel like the the guys in Metallica could even play a lot of winger stuff. And so he always thought it was funny, and by funny, like insulting, that they would get trashed you know, as not metal enough or whatever when he felt like they were far superior in terms of musicianship to, um, to the guys in, in Metallica. And so... Um, Which may be true, but misses the point of, you know, the appeal of a lot of music. And I think that's that's actually kind of relevant to what we were talking about with the songwriting on this album, is that, you know, it is absolutely, like, as a songwriter myself, I can admire and respect almost all of the choices on this album. It is a very, very well-written album. You know, have some applause. Well done. But as a rock and roll album yeah that's not what's important you know yeah well the last thing i'll leave you with on this song is that i feel like listening to it now he wrote it like a metallica song off the black album <laughs> yeah oh for sure yeah 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 the rhythm of it the way the bass sounds on it the just the overall it's vibe even of it. i think it's even down tuned it's a pretty good metallica song i'm not gonna lie um <laughs> but it could to me like it stands up to the stuff on that album so uh very interesting and and you were the one that made me realize that today i did not even think of it as a as having to do with metallica until today it's got everything um, to do with metallica. it has everything to do with metallica absolutely so very interesting bonus track that we have here but you can see why they might have an axe to grind um when it came to you can also see why the u.s label might have gone do you know what let's not put that on the album yeah, how about we don't poke the bear? You guys are already on your yeah. way out. <laughs> like, <laughs> let's not let's not slam the door behind you. Absolutely. Um, last thing I'll say on the on Winger this album and just my experience with them in general. One of the best bands I've ever seen play live. If you oh, get that a chance to see them, me. yeah, yeah. Uh, and Kip Winger is put is sixty now, I believe. But I saw them last in 2017 uh, at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut, and they were incredible. Can he His still hit the incredible. notes? He did that night. Uh, you know, that's shit. five years ago now, so I don't know. But uh, we'll find out on their upcoming album. The only song they played off of this album was Down Incognito, which is greatly mm. disappointing to me with the quality of songs on this album. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they were fantastic. If you get a chance to see them in a festival or something like that, they do a lot of festivals, a lot of 80s festival stuff. Um, but they also tour around. 
Um, Reb Beach is a full-time member of Whitesnake, so he is often right. out on tour with Whitesnake. He's been with them for a very long time now. Um, but yeah, so uh, that's your winger episode, everyone. You finally got one. <laughs> All those people one. who wanted it, there it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we said, overall, I think I've said everything. You know, it's I can I can respect and, ad- and admire it, but it, it ain't one that I'll be, you know, sticking in my regular rotation. I will listen to it enough for the both of us today, <laughs> tomorrow, and every day. And for the rest of your life. <laughs> Forever. Uh, all right, before we get to the homework, let me do the usual spiel. Remind everyone once again that you can support the show directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out, where you can start your pledge at just $1 per episode. Uh, and we only charge you per episode, not every month. Uh, so uh, you know that you're getting your money's worth. Well, we hope you're getting your money's worth anyway. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Uh, that's got links to our email and Twitter um, accounts. And uh, you can, of course, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout and talk with other listeners and us there. So this was a tough one, actually, because I am... I am. Tr- I mean, I, I've told you that I don't have a theme for this volume, and that's true. But I am also trying not to fall too much into predictable ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm going to use this. <laughs> I'm going to use this show as an opportunity to listen to a band that I have thought I should listen to for years and have never got round to. So this may be a weird case where I'm picking an album that you actually may know better than me, or a band anyway, that you may know better okay. than me. Okay. Uh, I mean, you may, or you may not, I don't know, but it's just one of those things. So, and also this is a band that's been around for 20 years now, but I'm going to pick their most recent album, which gets very good reviews, uh, you know, is apparently, you know, the sort of the old cliches of, oh, it's a return to form and stuff. But, you know, many reviews have said, actually, this is their best album because they clearly are at the sort of height of their powers, even though their most popular album was, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. So the band is Trivium. <gasps> Do you know Please Trivium tell me at all? we're going to talk about In the Court of the Dragon. We are indeed. Do you Have you already got oh, this album? Oh, my God, I love this album. Oh, see, I've never heard it. I literally haven't, oh. I haven't listened to it, but I have wanted. It. It's a band that I've thought, you know, I should give Trivium a listen. People I oh know whose God. taste yes. I respect talk about them, you know, in glowing terms. Uh, but I've just never given myself this sort of time or chance to listen to them. And yeah, this, as I say, this album gets well, plaudits uh, from people who do know them. I'll give you uh, uh, just a tiny spoiler. Up until that album, I also had the same experience with Trivium. I knew very little about them, had listened to maybe a handful of songs. This was really my full intro to the band, and um, I cannot wait to talk about it. Cool. Oh, that's great then. (laughs) This is going to be such an unusual episode, which is brilliant. It's going to be awesome. All right. So, yeah, there's your album, Trivium, In the Court of the Dragon. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a month or so. Until then, keep thrashing. Take care.
you know, uh, rock being absolute mainstream and, uh, oh, actually, can you hold on one second? My cat just kicked open my door. <laughs> Sorry. Hold on a second. <laughs> 